Go ahead and open there. If you have one of our Bibles, it's on page 1058. If you don't have a good Bible, uh, you're welcome to keep that one and use that. Bring it here, take it home. And, uh, you know, I don't know how you are about uh, writing in your Bibles. Um, it, it just depends. On, you know, but I want to encourage you that the words are sacred, the pages aren't. Okay? And, and so if, if, if that helps you, you, take that Bible, scribble in that, jot down notes, whatever. I'm not a guy that's like, you need to take notes on the sermon. But if something sticks out to you in the passage, I want you to, to make that known to yourself so that you go back and you, and you see that again. Okay? So I want to encourage you to, to engage with the scripture this morning. Uh, open those pages and, and dig in with us. So, um, so here's, here's how we could summarize the entire letter of Titus. Okay? Uh, Paul is telling Titus how to teach the Cretan churches how to live in a way that reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ and his transforming power. Paul is telling Titus how to teach the Cretan churches how to live in a way that reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ and his life-transforming power. Paul never gives Titus an instruction on how to live without also giving him a reminder of the gospel. He always anchors what Christians should do to what Christians should believe. Chapters and verse numbers weren't added until much later after Paul wrote the letter. We've talked about this before, but we see this pattern of belief and behavior in three cycles, and those cycles just happen to be conveniently broken up into these three chapters in Titus. Last week, we, we saw that when it was talking about elders, and he rooted in, in um, or the last two weeks, uh, he began the, the, uh, the opening of the letter with the gospel itself, and then talked about how that worked into the lives of of uh, elders. And, and today, um, we're going to see how that works into the lives of the rest of the church. And the very first sermon I preached at Redeemer in the high school, October 20th, 2019, was on Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. These are our foundational verses for the church. This is where we even get our church name from, from verse 14. And then when I preached on, on, on that passage back then, I talked about how grace comes from God to us through Christ. And today we're going to look at all of chapter 2 to see how that truth necessarily brings out noticeable life change in all of God's people. Because it's a larger passage, we're looking at the whole thing this morning. I'm not going to read it uh, in its entirety beforehand. And so we'll just read it as we go and work our way through it. But I do want to pray that God would open our eyes to it. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. I'm grateful that we can open it, these pages week after week after week, and they never change. And so we pray, Lord, that as we open these pages and we dig in week after week after week, that you would use them to change us according to the truth of the gospel, the sound teaching of Jesus Christ, and the power of your spirit soaked in your grace. So we pray that we would hear your word, believe it, and obey it this morning because of who you are and who you're making us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. From, from the first Sunday, we've had this banner. And, and, and if you were on the launch team, you know our mission statement is we exist to bring glory to Jesus Christ by helping each other connect the realities of the gospel to the realities of our lives, right? It, it's, just a, it's just another way to say, love God, love people, make disciple makers, right? The great commandment, the great commission. But if we think about this mission of, of the church, 
That requires each one of us to know, teach, and apply God's word to our lives. Now, the majority of that will happen informally through the relationships that we build with one another. The rest of that will happen formally through the regular preaching of God's word here and through specific ministries in the church. And if you were here last week, you heard me talk about how our top priority in following with Titus 1.5 needs to be to set right what was left undone and prayerfully seek out and, and appoint a plurality of elders who can share in the overall teaching and shepherding of the church here at Redeemer. And even though that needs to be a top priority, it shouldn't be our only priority. So just in case you walked away last week thinking, well, that's the only thing we're going to do for a while, uh, I want to clear that up with you this morning. See, we also need to work on ways for every member to engage in this mission of the church. And so here's the main idea for this morning. Because God has given every believer his grace in Christ, the whole church, the whole church, should be eager to live lives that look like the gospel. That means that we need to develop a culture of disciple-making in the church that helps all of us grow deeper in our gospel understanding and wider in our gospel practice through formal and informal means. Paul's going to give us a picture of what that culture looks like in our passage today, and, and we'll start with gospel practice because that's what he starts with. But we're going to quickly see that it's our deepening roots of gospel understanding that enable the widening branches of gospel practice to bear rich gospel fruit in our lives together. So I want to read Titus 2, 1 through 10. But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of love and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, homemakers, kind, and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter, utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. That beginning phrase in verse 1, but you are to proclaim this offers a stark contrast between those who, who claim to know God but deny them, deny him by their works. We talked about that in, in Titus 1.16. And, and, and uh, th this contrast between those people and Titus, whom Paul left on Crete to teach and to show people how to live in a way that's consistent with the sound teaching of the gospel and affirms their claim to know God. It also sets up his instruction for the church to live in contrast to those who say they know God, but they don't show it with their lives because the church needs to be people who say it and show it. Now, it's important and helpful for us to understand that the context of Paul's instructions in verses 2 through 10 are anchored, it's anchored to verse 1. Even though Paul is applying these commands specifically to Cretan households as they participate in the church, he's not rooting these commands in the Cretan culture. 
He's rooting them in the sound teaching of the gospel. You are to proclaim what's consistent with sound teaching. Verse 1. So these aren't societal standards that Paul is adopting here. They're scriptural standards. We need to understand that. They reflect God's good design from creation and culminate it in Jesus Christ. Paul's taking the realities of the gospel and applying them to the realities of their lives here for the glory of Christ and the growth of Christ's church. In these first 10 verses, we see the gospel applied generationally, gender-specifically, and socioeconomically. It'll sound similar to what we heard when we went through Ephesians a few months ago. And if you remember from Ephesians 5 and 6, Paul never condones slavery. He never condones the dehumanizing of any man, woman, or child. He raises, always raises them up in equality as image bearers of God. And when we keep that into perspective, then what he says here to Titus will make more sense as he applies the gospel to different groups in the typical Cretan household and shows how each one contributes to the overall health and growth of the church for the sake of the gospel. Now, along with specifically instructing Titus himself, Paul gives instructions for older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and slaves here in this passage. Right off the bat, we should notice that the one thing that's required of all of them, self-control. It's a major theme throughout Paul's letter. Self-control is one of the qualities that he requires uh, for elders in chapter 1. And we'll see more outworkings of self-control again as we look at chapter 3 over the next couple weeks. In the Cretan culture that was known for wild living, self-control was an obvious deviation from the norm and a clear display of the gospel's transformational power in someone's life. And so let's look at these someones that Paul is addressing here. When he says older men, Paul's referring to a different group than he was in chapter 1 when he mentioned elders. The Greek words sound similar to one another, but here he's talking about age and not office. And in Paul's day, men were considered older once they reached the age of 50 or or more. And that was also uh, typically true for women as well. Now, for my own job security, I'm not about to try to categorize you guys here as older or younger, okay? I will let you do that yourself. But we ought to be able to recognize that, I mean, look around. When you see multiple generations in the church, that's a gift from God. That's God's gift to us that we can work with. And the important thing that Paul is communicating here is that those in the older generations have the joy and the responsibility to train those in the younger generations how to live lives that look like the gospel. If you think of Deuteronomy 6, it's, it's this parents training your children up, Right? We have to pass the gospel on to the next generation or they quickly forget. And we quickly forget. So that means if you're a member here at Redeemer and you look around and you see at least one person younger than you, you have the joy and the privilege and the responsibility to train the younger generations in gospel living. The qualities that Paul describes here for older men are really similar to what he describes for elders in chapter 1, and that's because elders aren't the only godly men in the church. What makes older men a good example to the younger men isn't that they've had more life experiences, but that they've grown in dependence on and confidence in Christ through those life experiences as they've held firm to sound teaching of the gospel. 
They've endured hardships over the years, and they, they still have a tender heart because Jesus Christ is their sure and steady hope. The next group Paul addresses is older women. And I love how he starts at verse 3. He says, in the same way. Women in the church aren't called to a lesser Christ or a lesser gospel. They're called to the same kind of self-control, obedient to Christ's living that the men are, and yet there will be ways in which the gospel practices of men and women in the church are distinct from one another because even as men and women are created equally in God's image and have the same worth and value, God has also made men and women distinct from one another in terms of roles in the family and in the church. This is what Scripture teaches us. And this was God's good design, design before the sinful fall of Adam and Eve distorted it. And so when men and women live out God's design in their lives, now it gives evidence of the gospel's power to redeem relationships that sin has corrupted. And that's what Paul is getting at here in verses three through five. You see, we need to guard against the temptation to read these, pa- the, the, these verses here and immediately think of every chauvinistic misrepresentation we've seen or heard or experienced. It's really not a good idea to build our theology off of our experience. It's a much better idea to build our theology off the solid word of God. That doesn't dismiss what we've experienced, but it should inform it. Paul isn't giving these instructions to suppress women, but to raise them up as indispensable contributors to the overall health and life of the church. His instructions for how older women should conduct themselves put, puts the gospel in action and keeps them from being defined as, if you remember from chapter 1, verse 12, uh, liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. In other words, they are to conduct themselves as Christians and not Cretans. They're to behave in a way that's fitting for those who are holy, and that means that they can no longer be reckless with their mouths through slander and drunkenness because those things show a lack of gospel-fueled self-control. Instead, they're to use their mouths to teach what is good, which means they are to teach what is godly. Jesus, in, in, in his uh, uh, interaction with the rich young ruler, he says, good teacher, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. When we think of the word good, and we put it in front of works, Especially in Titus, we need to think of godly works. Works that are reflective of God's character and nature. So this means that older women are to teach things consistent with the gospel so that they can train the young women how to, uh, to sacrificially love their husbands and children above themselves. How to be self-controlled instead of wild and reckless. How to be productive in the home instead of being idle, which often led to gossip and slander and drunkenness. How to be pure and kind instead of evil. How to, be volu- or how to voluntarily yield themselves to their husbands in love as they would to Christ. The priority here is not homemaking. I realized as I read that verse, I have an older version of the CSB. It says homemaker. The newer version says workers in the home. It's not about homemaking. It's about holiness. This is what Paul is getting at. It's not ultimately about whether or not women should work outside the home, but about whether or not the Holy Spirit is working in them regardless of where they're at. That means that it applies to women whether they're married or single, whether they have kids 
or no kids. It also means that elders aren't the only ones that, that teach in the church. In fact, when Paul paints the picture here, what, what the picture he paints here in chapter 2 is this beautiful picture of holistic disciple-making in the church where every member involved is teaching and training one another, especially from one generation to the next, so that new generations see and hear things consistent with sound teaching of the gospel and learn how to live lives that look like the gospel. Every member is charged with personally developing a clear and robust understanding of Scripture so that they can pass God's Word on to the next generation. But we're also called to show that theology by applying it to our lives as an example of others. That then makes older men uniquely fitted to train younger men through their example because they share similar life experiences. And it makes older women uniquely fitted to teach and train younger women through their example because they share similar life experiences. And so while chapter 1 made it clear that the elders who, uh, who shepherd and teach the church as a whole are to be men whom God has called and qualified to do so, chapter 2 makes it clear that the whole church is called to teach one another in our God-given contexts. I really appreciate the perspective of Susan Hunt in an open letter that she wrote as an older woman addressed to younger women in the church regarding Paul's words here in Titus 2, 3 through 5. This is what she says. Covenantal discipleship is educational. It's relational. It's transformational. Women need godly, mature women to teach them what is good according to God's word. Women need to learn the theological basis for our creation design our roles in the home and in the church, and our calling to be life givers in every role and stage of life. Women need women who will share their lives to train them how to apply the word in all of life, how to love others, care for their families, cultivate community, work productively, and extend compassion according to God's word. They need godly women who prayerfully and continually point them to the sufficiency of Scripture to transform them from life takers to life givers. What I love about this quote is how much she elevates the role of God's word in the lives of women in the church. A richly developed gospel-centered theology of scripture is not gender-specific, nor is the ability to teach that theology to others. But as Susan points out so well, scripture itself points to the beauty in God's design for women to teach his word to other women and apply it in ways that only women can do. A healthy women's ministry is rooted, that's rooted in scripture and shared through life-giving relationships is, is just as vital to the overall health of the church as appointing a group of godly elders to lead God's people in the gospel of God's truth and word. For these women who are covenant members here at Redeemer, I want you to know that as your pastor, my heart is both to be faithful to God's word as it relates to God's created design for men and women, but also to be faithful to God's word as it relates to empowering and equipping you to be indispensable participants in the maturing of the body of Christ here. See, our tendency is to see those things in tension with one another. But my desire is to help us all see how God's good design and your active participation work together so that you benefit and the church benefits, so that Christ is glorified in his church and the transforming power of the gospel is displayed. And as we add more elders, this needs to be their desire as well. 
We will work to shepherd you and to support you in the faithful and fruitful use of your spiritual gifts here as image bearers of God and valued members of our spiritual family. There's no despisable role in the church, and here's why. Because the very definition of being in the church, I'm not talking about physical presence. I'm talking about spiritually united to one another. The very definition of that means that everyone who can say that truthfully is a recipient of God's grace. And the roles and the tasks that God has given to each believer in the church are an outworking of that grace for the growth of the whole body of Christ. This is what Ephesians 4 teaches us, is every member does its part. In the same way, older men... Older women and younger women are to be self-controlled. Paul tells Titus in verse 6 to encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Or maybe your translation says the young men need to be self-controlled and then he goes on to tell Titus in everything. Set yourself an example. Either way, Titus himself as a younger man needs to model this for these young men. How to live and what gospel living looks like. In verse 7... Paul tells Titus, make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Good works, again, are godly works, works produced from faith that reflect Titus's dependence on and confidence in Christ. And notice how Paul roots them once again in the sound teaching of the gospel. He tells Titus, your walk needs to match your talk, Titus. Titus needs to teach with integrity. He needs to, to preach the pure, undiluted doctrines of the gospel. And he needs to teach with dignity, with a seriousness that shows that he practices what he preaches so that he's worthy of respect. And any opponent to his teaching will be ashamed because they can't find anything bad to say about him or anybody else who take his sound teaching to heart and apply it to their lives. You see, Paul says to Titus, you need to show them. You need to show these guys how to live. And then he says that slaves who've been saved by Christ should show self-control as well. Self-control that's reflective of the gospel's transforming power in their lives. Again, Paul isn't condoning slavery here. The whole picture of the New Testament especially teaches us the value and worth and dignity of every human being as an image bearer of God. And, and those verses are foundational, have been foundational in emancipation movements. He's not condoning slavery, but he is condoning holiness. And that has ramifications even for slaves in their current situation. You see, gospel transformation doesn't always result in an immediate change in circumstances. You're probably already aware of that. But it does begin to change people's hearts in the midst of their circumstances. Their newfound freedom in Christ doesn't give these slaves license to talk back or to steal from their masters. Instead, Christ's love for them and their desire for their masters to know the transforming power of the gospel ought to com compel these slaves to be exemplary in the way they interact with their masters. Paul says they should make every effort to joyfully submit to their masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, do a good job. And to demonstrate utter faithfulness. That's a tall order. But Paul never tells them to do it in their own strength. What reason does he give them to treat their masters this way? So that these slaves may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. Like everyone else, Paul has already mentioned here, their behavior will reflect what they believe. 
And if they believe the gospel, they will live lives that look like they've been clothed in Christ. They'll adorn the teaching. Did you notice the so that in verse 5, 8, and 10? So that God's word won't be slandered. So that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. So that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. We need to understand this. When Christians act like Cretans, God's word is slandered. When we walk in disobedience to Jesus while claiming unity with Jesus, we slander Jesus and his gospel message. And we give his opponents more reason to to discredit his saving power and the ability to transform hearts. Instead, our lives should be an audible and a visible display of the beauty of the gospel to others. Lives that look like the gospel are lives that noticeably and consistently grow in dependence upon and confidence in Christ. I really want that phrase to just stick in our minds. Dependence upon and confidence in Christ. Ever increasing, both in speech and in action. And all of it that lines up with his word. And Paul tells us then what the teaching of God our Savior is that we are to adorn in verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. This is a rich and beautiful summary of what the gospel does. In his grace, God brings salvation to everyone who hears the gospel message and believes it, whether they're old or young, whether they're male or female, whether they're slave or free. The same gospel grace that saves us also instructs us how to live godly lives now and gives us certain hope for the future glory to come. The gospel shows us that God's grace is not a thing. It's a person, his own son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself willingly, lovingly, sacrificially to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Jesus died on the cross for rebellious sinners to rescue them from lawless living and to ransom them from God's righteous wrath by taking their punishment upon himself. If you know yourself to be a sinner in need of a savior, that's the glorious truth. If you don't know yourself to be a sinner in need of a savior, that's the glorious truth. He lived a righteous life to cleanse us from legalistic living and truly make us holy. And he rose from the grave to seal our adoption. Oh, that we would learn that we are children of God. And what that means for this life right now. He rose from the grave to seal our adoption and his, 
as his own possession so that we can be free and eager to do good works, godly works that are fruit of grace-filled living. Christ redeems us. He cleanses us. He instructs us. He gives us hope. And he propels our work. And he, and he conforms us by his grace into his image through our obedience to his word, empowered by his Holy Spirit. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. His grace is not just saving grace. That's super important. But it's also training grace. It instructs us to, die, to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Author David Wells defines worldliness as anything that any particular culture does to make sin look normal and righteousness look strange. This is why we need God's word. Because God's word instructs us how to live so that righteousness looks normal and sin looks strange for all those who've been transformed and are being transformed by the grace of Christ. That phrase, while we wait, doesn't mean we sit around and twiddle our thumbs. Verse 12 doesn't allow us to do that. Instead, we're to, to be active in gospel living with eager readiness for the blessed hope, the guaranteed return of our Savior in all of his glory. The certain reality that's coming ought to, to drive the way we live in our current reality. That means we ought to be people who are eager to live lives that look like the gospel. Now, again, as your pastor, I just want to tell you how encouraged I am by the eagerness I see in your lives. Eagerness to do good works, not to earn God's favor, but because you are his child. And I want you to know that I'm eager too. That's why appointing elders should be a top priority, but not our only priority. We also need to work together to develop a culture of disciple-making here in the church that helps all of us grow deeper in our gospel understanding, robust in our theology, and wider in our gospel practice through formal and informal means. So, you should have a sheet of paper on your chair or near you. The top of that paper are the words, I'm interested in the following. And then there's a list of, hand, of a handful of ways that we can start to focus on right now to develop that culture of disciple making together. Now, these aren't the only ministries okay, that we'll have at Redeemer. You're probably thinking of some right now that aren't on that list. And because they're not the, uh, uh, and beca just because those things aren't on here, doesn't mean that we'll never have them. These are just the things that I believe that we need to focus on and put our energy and resources and priorities to first as we start to grow the ministries of this church. The ministry of the church comes from the members of the church and follows the mission of the church. Gospel people partner together for the gospel work under the gospel care and leadership of elders in the local church. That's why the church membership is important. That's why it's on the list. So if you want to serve in a ministry at Redeemer, membership is your first step. So check that box. Bible study is on the list because our mission requires each of us to know and teach and apply God's word to our lives and help each other do that. So if you're interested in studying the Bible together, whether it's formally in a, in a class or in a men's or women's ministry or informally in a small group or one-on-one -on -one setting, check that box and we'll
talk more about it. Kids' ministry is on the list because it's a pressing need. And Paul tells Titus at the end of chapter 3 to let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they won't be unfruitful. Now, I have some ideas of what our kids' ministry can look like here in this building so that it promotes multi-generational involvement, whether you have kids in the ministry or not, and makes good use of our building space. And I'd love to talk about these ideas with you and to hear yours. So if that interests you, check the box. Fellowship's on the list because it gives us ways to build the disciple-making culture informally and formally in some ways through relationships Things like church lunches, one another meals, and other things that give us an excuse to be together. So if you're interested in that, you want to know what a one another meal is, uh, check that box. Outreach is on the list because our mission is not just to help each other connect the realities of the gospel to the realities of our lives inside the church, but also outside the church. Disciple making isn't just discipleship. That's an important part of it but it's also evangelism. We go to make disciples. We got to tell them the gospel first and then grow in the gospel together. So if you're interested in helping our church members grow personally and corporately in our witness to the community, then check that box. And then last but not least, the building is on the list because this place will serve as a central hub for a lot of the formal and some of the informal disciple-making efforts here. We need people who are willing to and able to oversee and or do projects and maintenance work that need to be done in order for us to use this space to its fullest potential. We need people that can work on the air conditioning and that kind of stuff, right? So if that interests you, check that box. Now listen, you're not committing to anything by checking a box, okay? You're not signing this in your own blood. But if you fill this sheet out, and you check the boxes that are interesting to you. That gives us the ability then to organize people into groups and to have conversations and, and dream and, and start to get ideas and start to put energy into the eagerness that, that goes somewhere and, and builds these ministries together. So it's not like you, you can only check one box and you can't check the others. If, if these things interest you, check the box. Fill out your contact info and then drop that sheet of paper in that basket back there on your way out. It's sitting there on that round table. We got one last verse to read in chapter 2. Paul says, proclaim these things, telling this to Titus. Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Paul is instructing Titus to instruct the churches and their leaders to hold fast to and live according to the gospel that Paul has just laid out and continues to lay out in this letter. The authority comes from God's commands, not from Titus himself, not from Paul himself. It comes from God and his word. But no one should disregard Titus because he is to set the example for living and teaching the gospel, verse 7. And so this also is also a major role that the elders play in the church today, to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it, Titus 1.9. And to keep the church fixed on Christ and clearly identify beliefs and practices that contradict Jesus' character and commands to help us stay on mission and equip one another to carry it out. 
This is why we need to focus on appointing and adding more elders. But it's also why we need to focus on developing a culture of disciple-making in the church through formal and informal means. We all, all of us, need to grow deeper in our gospel understanding, which means we need to grow deeper in our understanding of God's word. And we need to grow wider in our gospel practice that, that, that permeates more and more of our lives in formal and informal ways. Because God has given every believer his grace in Christ. The whole church should be eager to live lives that look like the gospel. That means that we rest in God's saving grace that has appeared to us through his son. It means that we welcome his transforming grace through spirit-empowered obedience to his word that instructs us to live self-controlled, godly lives in this present age. And it means that we work while we wait with great eagerness for the blessed hope of his finishing grace to come at the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you think about that? It's really hard to grasp. Sometimes I look up in the sky and I go, this whole thing's going to open up. That's That's a sure and certain hope that should fuel our work. So as God's people, let's go to work. Lord, we thank you for your word, how it instructs us, reminds us over and over and over because we are forgetful people, reminds us of the grace that we've been given so freely in Christ to rescue us from ourselves, from God's righteous wrath against us for our sinful, rebellious disobedience to him, reminds us that we've been given all the righteousness righteousness that we need in Christ, in his obedience to the Father reminds us that Christ is risen, reigning, seated at the right hand, interceding on our behalf. And he's going to return for his people. So give us the grace that we need to continue growing in dependence upon you, confidence in you, as we wait for that blessed hope. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.